Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode begins with a quick reminder that the Other People podcast is a listener-supported program. It's entirely free. All episodes are free. The app is free. Everything is free. So I count on the support of listeners in order to keep the show going. If you would like to donate, if you like the program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, and you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also donate via PayPal if that works better for you. To do that, just go to the show's official website. There's a PayPal link in the sidebar. Thank you very much. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm sitting here in my garage in Los Angeles, and I have Nathan Hill as my guest today. His debut novel, The Knicks, is one of the most celebrated debuts in recent memory. It was published in hardcover by Knopf to rave reviews. It has been translated into more than 30 languages. It is now available in trade paperback from Vintage. And my conversation with Nathan is coming up in just a bit. Before I begin... I do want to read a letter from a listener named Pete. He writes to me, Dear Brad, I wanted you to know that I had a session with the Oracle yesterday. And uh, I should interrupt, actually, before I continue, by uh, letting you know that Pete is referring to Amanda Yates Garcia, a.k.a. the Oracle of Los Angeles. The Oracle of Los Angeles was my guest in episode 444 of this program. Amanda is a artist, a writer, a witch a healer, and an oracle. So Pete writes, Dear Brad, I wanted you to know I had a session with the oracle yesterday. Holy shit. Damn. I give energy healings to people and work with all sorts of magic. She blew my mind. I was sweating, weeping, screaming, and laughing as she held space for me safely. It was like a kundalini experience. Energy was pouring out of me that had been trapped inside me my whole life. Anyway, I would have never called her for a session if you had not had her on your program, so I want to thank you. All the best. Yours truly, Pete. 
So, uh, Pete, I want to thank you for writing it. Sounds like you had a great session with the Oracle of Los Angeles. It also sounds a little terrifying to me, if I'm being honest. Uh, Sweating, weeping, screaming, and laughing. That's a lot. Covers a lot of territory. And what it makes me think of is it makes me think of the supernatural. My inability to uh, access the supernatural. The fact that I've never seen a ghost. The fact that I don't feel the presence of sprites and fairies in the universe. The fact that uh, aliens have never tried to abduct me. The fact that I've never heard the voice of God. It can make me feel like there is some sort of valve within me that is closed. That were it open, uh, my life would involve these kinds of events. And then on the other hand, I can find myself soothing myself by thinking that perhaps uh, I'm just firmly rooted in reality or something. I don't know. I think ultimately I'm open to possibilities and I can only speak to my own experience and I'm always fascinated by people who seem to have access to these realms, these kinds of experiences. So thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in. And uh, I'm glad you had a good time with the Oracle. I hope your chakras are cleared. So speaking of chakras, I, uh, I got a massage last night. I'm recording this on Saturday, so this would be uh, Friday night. I came home from work, my day job. It was the end of the week. I was exhausted, uh, depleted. And my wife and kids surprised me and said that they had ordered me a masseuse who was going to come to the house and give me a a massage in our garage at 7.30 p.m. I think my wife used a... She used an app. (laughs) You can order a masseuse through an app now. So my wife got this app. She ordered a masseuse. The masseuse uh, was female and she showed up at our house and I happened to be at the front of the house when she arrived. So I, I looked out the window, I glanced out the window and there she was unloading her massage table from her car. So instinctively, I just opened the door, walked out onto the porch and said hello to her and said, uh, you know, Hey, can I help you with your table? And what I noticed was that there was a distinct look of fear in her eyes as she assessed me from the street because the reality is that it was Friday night. I'm a grown man who uh, is getting an in-home massage from a woman. <laughs> it's a weird psychological dynamic is what I'm driving at here. There is a, there is a psycho, there's an undeniable psychological dynamic that, ha- that happens in the context of any massage. Whether it's at your house or it's in a spa, wherever it happens to be. Whether you're male, whether you're female... But I think especially if you're a guy getting a massage from a woman, it just, it's a loaded experience and there's a creep factor that is always sort of, uh, broiling beneath the surface. Is broiling the right word? It's probably not the right word, but you know what I'm saying? It's there at the subconscious level. Everybody's thinking about it. Nobody's talking about it. And if you know anything about me, from listening to this podcast, you know that I like to talk about the things that I think about. I like to bring things out into the open. I'm not comfortable with what I feel are very common, subterranean 
psychological experiences being repressed or unspoken. So this woman, her name was Brandy, carries her massage table up to the door. She, did not, uh, she refused my offer of assistance, saying that her table was lighter than it looked. So she arrives, a uh, very nice young woman, and I was relieved that my wife and kids were, were home and still awake because I feel like that helped to, uh, you know, mitigate against the creep factor. It's like, oh, he's normal. He's got a wife. He's got kids. This isn't some creepy guy who lives alone and is ordering a masseuse to his house with unsavory expectations. So, uh, you know, she sets up the massage table in the garage and uh, the TV is turned on to one of those music stations. You know how you have music stations on your cable television dial way up high? Pick like the Zen channel. (laughs) And, uh, you know, create like a spa environment as much as you can in the garage and I get a massage. And I did not talk at all about what I just discussed. But I thought about it. I always think about this. Like, do uh, especially female masseuses massaging men, how often do things get weird? How often do men uh, behave in ways that make them feel uncomfortable? Because, you know, getting a massage is an intimate experience. You're naked, you're under this sheet, there's uh, like lotion involved. We have to be real about this. And so on the one hand, my instinct is to talk with this woman, try to make small talk, try to uh, ingratiate myself, normalize things, have a laugh, make it uh, casual. And then on the other side of the coin is the fact that, well, this is a massage. It's supposed to be a relaxing experience. You don't want to talk your way through it because it will you know, affect her ability to do her job. It will affect your ability to relax into the experience and so on and so forth. So I wound up being relatively quiet and it was a delightful, uh, it was a delightful massage. Nothing weird happened. And uh, much to your chagrin, I imagine, I did not like interview the woman about the creep factor. I couldn't go there. Because I feel like if you start to talk about the creep factor, even as a curiosity, while you're getting a massage, that then runs the risk of becoming creepy. <laughs> like you're in a garage, the lights are low, the Zen channel is playing on your direct TV. If you're suddenly in the midst of the massage, like interrogating the woman about whether or not she ever has male customers who are creepy, I feel like that could potentially be perceived as creepy. It's a conundrum. And it makes me think that perhaps I should just have a professional masseuse, a professional female masseuse on this program, much like I had the Oracle of Los Angeles on this program, who in a sense falls outside the purview of my normal range of guests, but uh, nevertheless is a person for whom I would have lots of questions and who could probably tell a lot of interesting stories. Has anyone ever written a novel about a masseuse? It's an interesting job. So like, just like a second ago, I had a flash of uh, a book cover, a novel called The Masseuse by Brad Listy. (laughs) The Massage Garage by Brad Listy. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Nathan Hill. His debut novel, The Knicks, is now available in trade paperback from Vintage. It was great talking with Nathan, getting to know him a little bit here at the dawn of what appears to be a very promising career in American letters. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nathan Hill. Yeah, I was a retail brat. My dad, um, so when, when I was first born, my, uh, my, my dad uh, uh, got a job uh, at a Kmart um, in Iowa. And, uh, and, and unbelievably, I don't know if you could even do this anymore in, in today's economy, but, but back then, um, he, he, you know, he built a really great career and like a good middle-class life and like put three kids through college, um, uh, working at Kmart. Uh, and, uh, and he started just in like the sporting goods section, I think. And then every time, uh, every time a, uh, uh, a, a promotion was available, he would take it, but every promotion involved a move. Uh, so he was, you know, he got one promotion and we moved, moved to, uh, to Des Moines. And then he was offered, uh, I don't know, I, I forget the, I, I forget the, his actual titles, but, uh, moving to Oklahoma was the first time he managed a store. So he was the, the manager of a very small store in Oklahoma in rural Oklahoma. And then he did that for a couple of years and was given a larger store in Wichita. So, so yeah, it was really kind of following my dad's, uh, my dad's career as we, we kind of bounced around the Midwest. And, and was it hard for you? <sighs> yes and no. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know what it's like, you know, like being the new kid is kind of brutal, right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not fun. Um, and, uh, and so I was the new kid, you know, every, every couple of years, like uh, all my friends would kind of disappear, uh, and I'd have to make new friends. So, you know, anybody who's been the new kid knows that that can be really, really difficult. Um, on the plus side, I don't know. I, I feel like I saw a lot of the country. I had, I had really different adventures, you know, um, met a lot of people and in some ways, like, always going to someplace new, I think, helped me out later when I was sort of never afraid of kind of jumping into some, some new thing. Um, you know, moving out east, moving to New York, like, uh, doing things that, that, that might've otherwise been scary. Um, I felt like, well, it'll all work out. I've done this many, many times. So, um, so I don't know, you know? Yeah. I was going to say it strengthens that, it strengthens that muscle, you know, like it makes you, um, uh, I guess uh, more confident in your ability to assimilate 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting because the writerly temperament tends not to be super uh, extroverted. But when you're the new kid mm-hmm. and you have to assimilate uh, and you're trying to make friends and you're, you know, especially when you're an adolescent, uh, it sort of forces your hand. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to be new and shy and assimilate quickly. Otherwise, you're just going to be sort of left in the dust. So you seem, you seem, you know, based on... <laughs> 10 minutes on the phone, it's, you seem like a fairly gregarious, outgoing soul. Is that the case? Uh, I don't know, gregarious. Like, I'm, I, I'm definitely... <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, think, I, I think all things being equal, I prefer not to talk about myself, but this is an interview on a podcast, so I, I kind of have no choice, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, my mom has this, this theory about all my moving. Um, and, and she, she, she thinks it's why I, 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 I'm, I'm able to, to write convincing characters now. Cause she said that every time we moved to a new place, I would have to very, very quickly understand the kind of social lay of the land and understand what was expected and what was wanted. Um, and, uh, and kind of accommodate that. Uh, and she said she realized it when we first moved to Oklahoma uh, and I was going to the school that had like, my class was the biggest class in the school and had something like 16 people. The graduating class that year had three people. Um, and it was uh, the school was almost entirely drawn from like the local farmers and ranchers. It was an interesting place to, to be for a couple of years. And uh, and I'd always been a, a good student. Like school is just easy. Um, and uh, and I came to this place and, and, and frankly, like English class, which is going around the room trying to help people learn how to read you know and this is like eighth and ninth grade right and like i also recognized that the the kid in school who was the best like the valedictorian of our class like the the best student took a lot of pride in being the best student and he was also very roundly popular so i realized really quickly that i could not come in and take that title away from him or else i'd get my ass kicked Uh, and so i very consciously was second best in that school like academically uh because that's the way i knew i would be able to like fit in and not not get beat up um and and i told that to my mom when she was wondering why i was suddenly getting b's and c's on my report cards and i was like well it's because of this (laughs) she just kind of shook her head and she's like what other kid would think of that so i don't know her her argument now is that moving around a lot kind of helped me out uh like you know understanding people so here's a question for you you say you graduated high school in wichita correct yeah uh, did you know Ben Lerner by any chance when you were there? I, I did not. Is, is did he did he come out of Wichita or did he did he come out of Topeka? I want to say he came oh, out of Topeka. That's what it was. Okay, I think yeah. I'm, I'm misremembering. I was going to say my that. wife my wife is from Topeka and knows his family, but uh, does not know him. Okay, damn. I was going to say that would be totally random if uh, two <laughs> two young uh, you know rising star novelists both came out of uh, some you know relatively small. Kansas is Damn. where it's at. That's it's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but there is something to like the Midwest, and um, I mean, this is a uh, this might be like o- overdone, you know. But there, I think there is something to this idea that um, that tableau, you know, the Midwest, the Upper Midwest, the uh, inherent uh, boredom of it, the bleak winters, whatever it is, that does lend itself, I think, to uh, fostering creativity in people somehow. I, I I didn't even know how much I liked it until 
I, I moved away. I went to graduate school in Massachusetts, and uh, and uh, in at UMass, I was the guy from Iowa because I had just been living in Iowa City for several years, and I was born there, so I could finally really claim Iowa as, as home. And my first week there, uh, one of my one of my colleagues, another student, said that she had a dream about me, where in her dream I was leading her up this hill, and at the top of the hill I said, "And this is Iowa." And I like spread my arms out into this like beautiful horizon filled with like golden light and corn, and, <laughs> and it made me realize that like maybe I talk about the Midwest in a quite in a quite romantic way <laughs> if, the, if that's the impression I'm giving other people. I feel like I feel like you know because there's lots of states that have a similar terrain uh, up in that part of the country to Iowa, but for some reason in my mind Iowa is sort of like the apex of uh, Midwestern heartland grandeur. Like there's a real beauty to it in my imagination. I've spent no time there. And yet that's what, <laughs> that's what I, I, when I think of Iowa, I think of like that is, it's, it's like the, uh, it's like the ideal, you know what I'm saying? Like that rolling, that rolling farmland, that be- the beautiful uh, summers. Like it seems like a beautiful, lovely place to be. I don't. I wonder why that is. I, it, it's uh, it's 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 that way in my mind too, in my imagination. But I'm not I'm not quite sure why. I feel like if I if I think of a lot of other midwestern states, like my imagination about those states get all gets all messed up with other things. Like you think about Illinois and you start thinking about Chicago, you know. So Iowa maybe because I mean Des Moines is not exactly a major major kind of a major city that uh, that Iowa's. Um, the, your imagine your imagination of Iowa is more pure. I, I don't know what it is. I haven't really yeah. spent too much time thinking about it, but well, now I will. Well, you know, I'm from Indiana, and like when you think of Indiana, it's immediately like you know, uh, like cooking meth. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you just your mind slides into all sorts of dark territory. But uh, <laughs> there is there's a sort of holiness to Iowa in in my mind's eye. Well, good. I'm, I, I'll, uh, I'll I'll just leave it at that. Just let you let you continue to believe that. That's fine. Just let me let me have my dream. So yeah, that's right. Uh, I want to talk to you about your early reading life and like when the like the light went on for you. Um, you know, both as a reader and then also as a writer, because um, this figures into the Knicks as well. And I want mm-hmm. to talk to you about choose your own adventure books, which were a big deal to me when I was young, and it, it seems like they were a big deal to you as well. Yeah, they were. Um, I, I would uh, every time the bookmobile would come to the school, I would, you know, I would the night before I'd beg my mom for some for some money so I could buy as many choose your own adventure books as I could. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know why I I like those so much other than um, they were I mean they felt like they felt like video games which I was also at the time super into you know that it felt it felt like an adventure um and uh and so yeah I remember did you have a favorite did you do you remember um, no I don't remember that well but I mean if you if you if you do and I read it I would probably spark my memory <laughs> yeah I don't know I was it's it's one of those things that it's hard to go back like I saw a couple years ago um, uh, the the author of uh, a lot of the Choose Your Own Adventure books was back um, selling um, Choose Your Own Adventure apps, uh, and so I, I downloaded one for my phone and read it. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, it's too, you know, it's like watching watching some movie from your childhood and you realize that it's just not that great. Uh, um, so I, I haven't really gone back. I've it, like Iowa. I've uh, like the concept of Iowa. I've allowed Choose Your Own Adventure to remain kind of in, like pure in my imagination. <laughs> um, so no, I can't really recall any of my favorites. I just know that I really like them a lot and. Uh, um, and, uh, and I would, um, and I would 
do this thing where uh, some decision would need to be made and I would stick my thumb at, at the page of that decision and bookmark it and go where I thought I needed to go um, and then read the first couple paragraphs. And it, if it felt like I was making the wrong decision, I would flip back to where I bookmarked it with my thumb and, and go in another direction. I had this sense as a kid that there must be like one like platonically ideal way to get through a choose your own adventure book, like one perfect way. And I I don't know, like I felt like if I, if I could find that way, I would achieve some kind of wisdom or something. I'm not sure why, but it was really important for me to try to find the best way through the best path through any of these books. It sounds like good preparation for becoming a novelist. (laughs) Maybe. Um, it's, uh, I, I know that, um, that one one other thing that I used to do at the same period of my life, uh, uh, I was uh, I, I really liked the concept of Dungeons and Dragons, you know, but and like role playing games, but I could never find anybody to play them with me. Um, maybe partly an effect of, uh, of of moving around so much is that you never uh, you never find friends long enough to be able to kind of get into these rituals. But uh, but I would um, I would play Dungeons and Dragons by myself. I wrote an essay about this for Powell's, but uh, <laughs> this is the, uh, this is a this is a very sad story, Nathan. <laughs> I, it's, no, no, it's not because what? The, so here was the issue: like when I did find people to play with, or sometimes I would drag my sisters into playing with me. They never took it as seriously as I did, uh, and so it, it was actually it felt just better. Uh, just to do it alone. Like, you know, if you're like watching a sports game that you really, really are really involved in and you're watching it in a room for, full of people who just don't give a shit, it's kind of annoying. Like, you you're, you know, you'd kind of like want to watch it alone. That's kind of how I felt uh, about uh, about this. And, and so what I would do is I would play the dungeon master and I would play the adventurers and I would put them on their adventures. And since I'm playing every character, like these stories kind of, I don't know, emerge from uh, from the game. Like, you know, the you decide that the uh, the hot-headed barbarian would get into a fight with a level-headed wizard, and suddenly something that wasn't in your game book happens. You know, some kind of argument happens. And uh, I would put these characters through their paces, and I realized much later that that's sort of how I write. That uh, I don't, I never know what's going to happen, but I have characters, I have a setting, and I kind of put them through their paces. I put them through their adventure, and the plot sort of emerges from that process. So, so yeah, like maybe, maybe all of this like weird childhood stuff becomes great training for the kind of writer I became. Well, no, I mean it makes it makes a lot of sense to me, but it also um, it's something that I have no uh, experience with. Like the last time I played video games was in childhood, like old school Nintendo. Like it's not something yeah. that I carried forward with me, and then. I never got into uh, Dungeons and Dragons or any other any kind of role playing games, but it seems to me, based on your description of it and based on you know things I've read and heard over the years, it's like it's like a workout for your imagination. You know, it's, it seems like it would be a perfectly compatible thing with writing fiction and would help strengthen those muscles. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that, and uh, and I think that that it's it's text based, so it almost inherently requires you to to visualize it in your in your head you know um which is why i was never i was never really interested in um uh in kind of involved video games until until i started playing world of warcraft many years later under totally different circumstances but like you know the 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 kind of really involved video games um never really were interesting to me because uh it it felt like i was replacing your imagination in a way that it was um 
it, it's like uh, oh I don't know it's like reading a book after you've already watched the Hollywood adaptation of it like in some ways you just can't get the, the actors faces out of your brain you know I, I, I liked it when it was all a vacuum and I could I was free to invent it myself no that makes sense because I was I was gonna say you know like all of the super sophisticated narrative games that exist today and especially as we get into virtual reality where you're going to be in a completely immersive environment um that feels real you know mm -hmm. like, like that feels like it makes sense to me that that would be more of a cul-de-sac you know because everything's done for you you know you don't have to you don't have to do any of the imaginative work uh, in your own brain you you basically just go inside of it and yet there was a part of me because i don't have much experience with gaming it's not something i have time for in my life at this point mm -hmm. that maybe i'm missing something you know that maybe there's something to be gained by playing these games because i uh, my mind goes to steven spielberg for some reason uh yeah he, he gets super into gaming you know he's been into it for, for as long as i've been reading about him it seems he's always found something of use there and i guess there's something but I don't know. I, I kind of, as I think about it, it makes sense to me that it wouldn't be helpful to me to go into a world that's been like, like fastidiously created in every detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 I understand that. Um, uh, at, at the same time, like, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like f for me, I wouldn't necessarily mind doing it only because I have, I have fiction. I have literature to, to exercise those muscles now. Like I also, I don't really, I, I don't game anymore. Like, uh, um, I, I, I certainly don't play, I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons since I was like nine years old. Um, you can admit and, it. You uh, can admit it. What's Major. that? You can admit no, it. No, I really, <laughs> I've, I've, I've felt very exposed in this book tour. So at this point, I don't, at this point, I don't give a shit about like, <laughs> like admitting any embarrassing thing. I feel like they're all out there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not something I do anymore, partly because I found fiction, like partly like fiction ended up satisfying that that desire that kind of imaginative desire for me fiction and both reading it and writing it um uh i feel like i, I get that now from from that and so uh in in some ways the need for for games <clears throat> has gone away so and you and i read that you you know started thinking that you wanted to be a writer at a young age uh mm -hmm. you, you went to the university of iowa uh english major was that right uh not at first i mean eventually yeah um but uh um, I was, <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to be a writer, uh, but, but came from a family that, that, I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody in my family immediate and extended who are, who's in the arts. I'd have to think about that for a while, but I think I'm the only one, um, come from like big, you know, farm families from Iowa. And, uh, and so in some ways like being, be going into the humanities, it's just like, what, what, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> like, uh, um, I know that, that, uh, that you know my my dad worked really really hard to uh to send us to college and so one of the things that my parents were saying very early on was like you know if you're you're going to get to go to college one of the first people in your family to do that and so you better be studying something that's going to make you a lot of money <laughs> you know like you better do something practical with that and uh and so so yeah i i was you know i decided to be an engineering major so i studied engineering for my first two years at iowa um and uh and i went there I went to Iowa because of their engineering program and because I got a debate scholarship. So I was on the debate team at Iowa, and uh, and I was uh, I was an engineering major, um, and that lasted for two years. And at Iowa, I discovered, lo and behold, that they have this great writing program there. I had no idea, um, and uh, and so it was also the first time I had learned that you could study creative writing. Like that was a thing you could do um, in school. I'd never I never knew that before. So um, so yeah, I took a couple of creative writing classes on the side. 
uh, and then very quickly realized that I was way more into that than I was in my engineering studies. So against my parents' wishes, yeah, I, I changed to I changed to English after two years. And what about this debate team and this debate scholarship? Like, do you feel that debate and the uh, the preparation, the you know, just the requirements of making a reasoned argument, uh, does that help you at all creatively? Does that help you in constructing plots and uh, inventing characters? And do you know what I'm saying? Like, does that feed? Did that feed I, into your creative life at all? Um, I think in terms of research, you know, for for uh, for intercollegiate debate, the amount of research you have to do on any given subject is sort of absurd. Like, there's just so, I, I mean, I, I read more for the debate team than I did for all of my classes combined easily. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I, th I think, you know, I, I, I found that I really enjoyed it. Um, the research process, that kind of uncovery and discovery that happens along the way. I really liked spending time, some time in libraries, you know. And um, anybody who looks at the acknowledgments page in the Knicks will see that there is a lot of research uh, that went into writing this book in some ways that was really pleasurable. Like I really, it's one of my favorite parts of the process. And it's, it's, it's where I am right now with the next book in the research phase. And I'm, I'm right now staring at a, at a stack of about 20 books that I'm planning on reading for, before really, really diving into the next novel. And, uh, and so, yeah, so maybe, maybe that, maybe, maybe the research bit, the, the constructing logical arguments and all that stuff. Like, I, I, I don't know if that really helps you as a, as a, as a, as a novel writer, I think novel, uh, I think novel writing in some ways is so intuitive and so kind of gut level and instinctual that, that, that thinking about it too logically and rationally, um, might, might work against you. Um, I should also say that like when it said, when I, when I tell you that I got a debate scholarship, it sounds like I'm really hot shit, but, uh, but yeah, at Iowa, <laughs> I was, you know, like Iowa's got an amazing debate program and, and I was on their like C team for almost my entire, my entire time there. So I wasn't amazing at it, but, but I did do it for three or four years. When you got a scholarship. Yeah, I got a little scholarship for it, and uh, and I was I was very grateful for it. Yeah. So, and and that makes sense, like everything you just said. But I, I want to ask you a little bit more about research because um, everybody knows what that means generally, but specifically to be a very skilled researcher and to know where to go to find information. I think about this a lot in the context of journalism. Uh, you know, people who are working on nonfiction, like long form essays or, you know, uh, works mm -hmm. of books of nonfiction. I'm always amazed. It's like, where, where, like oh, how do you know where to go? How do you know how to find the data that you need and so on and so forth? And it's a skill set. And, and so, you know, you talk about the stack of 20 books that you have, um, you know, for uh, a person who writes books, that would make sense. You'd go to books and read a bunch of books. But are there other resources like online or otherwise or in libraries that you feel like you have um, a real facility with as an outgrowth of your debate uh, debate team work or whatever? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, like academic search, um, academic searches, uh, searches through um, uh, something like a tool like LexisNexis that allows you to to search through you know many decades worth of of news transcripts, um, uh, academic search premiere like these kinds of uh, things that are beyond Google or Google Scholar. Um, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I think I think debate really helped out uh, quite a lot with that, and and that that was really really helpful too. By the way, like there's a scene very early in the Knicks, I think it's in chapter one, um, where um, where there's a uh, where where the main character one of the main characters Faye is throwing rocks at a presidential candidate and I'm t I'm writing it kind of 
from the point of view of the news media as they kind of sensationalize it and cover it and and, uh, and kind of do what they do, which makes makes this one thing feel like it's buried under a flying avalanche of news coverage. Um, and the, one of the things that was really helpful um, uh, was LexisNexis and kind of using my debate training there, um, going to LexisNexis and looking up like one particular day um, in 2008 um, when uh, the stock market lost something like 700 points in a day and it was it was the beginning of kind of the second rumble of the uh of the recession and uh and and looking at the news shows that day like the transcripts from the news shows that day and looking how uh like reading how each news show on every channel covered this differently but also covered it kind of maniacally you know um uh, the decibel levels like all the way up to 10 uh, and so kind of reading those transcripts gave me it, it it gave me some confidence to write about write that that section in a way that I didn't think was was mocking the media. I didn't think it was satire, although a lot of people have called it that, uh, but was actually much more uh, uh, like a realistic portrayal of what happens when a big news story crosses the desk. Well, it almost satirizes itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, like you just turn on cable news sometimes and you, it can seem like a parody of itself. Uh, it, yeah, it's and it's true that like one of the most devastating things Saturday Night Live ever did to Sarah Palin is just repeat exactly what she said. Exa- <laughs> yeah, them, exactly. You know? <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exa- that was a brilliant. That was a stroke of genius. I thought like we don't even need it was, to. There's yeah. nothing to be improved here. This that's just that's just uh, write it down and read it <laughs> off the cards. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and if you're paying attention, it makes makes fun of itself. Yes. So okay, so let's get into the Knicks. Let's get into your writing career, and I, I want to um, specifically hear you talk about uh, the long struggle that it was, because I think my listeners, many of whom are writers or who are aspiring writers working on a book or you know whatever the case may be. Um, we'll find that relatable. Uh, I know I certainly do. So talk about the long road between, you know, setting out on this course and then finally getting to the, the widely celebrated publication of your novel. Yeah. So, uh, I, I think, um, I think it's, you know, when you're, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to collect, collect my thoughts on this. Uh, it's when you're, when you're like good at school and you, you know how to please your teachers, um, it's very easy to kind of coast, uh, and uh, and so I, I I think that a lot of the writing I did early in my career was I was sort of coasting, you know. I, even when I got to my my MFA program, you know, I, I had some some decent success placing stories in journals, and I thought, okay, I'll just kind of keep doing this, and uh, uh, and this work that's good enough will be good enough to you know get me my book deal, get me my agent, and and such and such. And that turned out to be just kind of laughably wrong. Uh, I, I finished my MFA program and uh, and and I, I kept writing and I I had had a manuscript of stories that were kind of like connected short stories I suppose and uh, and I I think it was I sent it out to agents and I think it was O for thirty eight I think is where I was and uh, just nobody was interested um, and uh, and and I had started the Knicks but I was writing it in a in a very I've said this in other interviews. I, I was writing it in a very kind of careerist way. Like I was, you know, I had finished my MFA program and moved to New York City with several other writers and met a bunch of other, you know, young writers in New York City. And all of us were just kind of ravenous and competitive. And and uh, I know I was paying very close attention to like who was getting 
lunches with editors and callbacks from agents and this kind of thing, the hierarchies of, uh, of, 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 uh, of publishing. And I know that I was writing stories at the time that I was thinking like, well, if, you know, this is going to be, you know, a story that could maybe I could apply for a grant with, or this can be a story that I can um, send to a certain tier of journal and, and so on. Just really silly, stupid thoughts like that. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it was, all of this stuff was really unimpressive kind of, uh, almost by definition, like, uh, uh, when, when that's the reason that, you, that you're writing, the writing's just not going to be very good. So, uh, so yeah, I was like, Oh, for 38 and, uh, and eventually just stopped, um, worrying about the whole publishing thing. Like I stopped sending out to a- agents. I stopped sending out to editors. I actually moved away from New York. Um, uh, my wife had gotten this job down in Naples, and I found a job uh, teaching composition classes at uh, Florida Gulf Coast University. So I moved down here too. So, so and, let me let me uh, let me stop so you. Got, got away from it. Can I can I interrupt sure. you real quick? Um, how long you were bet. you How long were you in New York? Not long, two two and a half years, something like that. Okay, but like long enough to to get a sense of the environment there. Uh, were you living in Brooklyn? I was living in Queens. Okay. Um, I was living in Queens. I was working in Soho. And uh, um, yeah, it's, you know what? It wasn't, I, I can't blame the environment in New York. I suppose that would be, that would be kind of an easy thing to do. But like, it's really, I, you know, looking back on it now, I blame, I really blame me. Like I, I just had the wrong attitude. I'm sure that other people could, could survive. And in, indeed, of course they do survive and thrive in New York, but I couldn't. Um that it wasn't uh, right for me, at least when I was 28 years old Okay, um, yeah, I was in, that, gonna, in that moment in my life. I was going to ask you, so you were like, this is your 20s. And I, you know, I never did that. And mm-hmm. uh, it's something of a regret of mine. I would love to have lived in New York when I was young. Uh, but I lived in Los mm-hmm. I lived in Los Angeles. So uh, it's a curiosity to me, especially as it's still, you know, it's still the, the epicenter of publishing. And, um, you know, it seems to be where the vast majority of ambitious writers go to sort of make their mark you kind of i don't know you, you i think you do gain something from being that close to it much in much the same way that if you want to work in hollywood you gain something from living in los angeles yeah. even just osmotically so like do, do, like the the hyper competitive environment the proximity to uh editors and agents and all that like did it teach you anything uh even as you moved away about the business of publishing that later came to be valuable and you know, actually, all it really taught me, I think, uh, was how far away from it I really was. You know, and and the fact that it's so proximate makes that all the more deliciously kind of devastating. You know, <laughs> um, here here I was like in the middle of the city, in the middle of the publishing world, and I couldn't get any access at all. You know, like the uh, uh, the best the best access I could get was was creating websites for writers who didn't know how to create their own websites. Like that's <laughs> that was my freelance gig. You know, um, and and, and uh, it was. It was really, it was just really sad um, because I, I knew writers and I knew that the business was right there, but I, but I just couldn't crack into it. I couldn't break into it, um, and uh, and that was entirely my fault. I mean, it was not 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 New York's fault or not publishing's fault, but I was just I just had the wrong mindset at the time, um, uh, and uh, and and it, everything really changed once I once I left, um, uh, once I wasn't in the middle of it, and once that that kind of like envy and jealousy wasn't so proximate. Um, uh, everything became much easier for me. Um, uh, I, once I decided to start writing this book and, and even though I didn't know where it would go, um, and even though it seemed like it was going to be long, 
um, just to just to do it anyway. Um, I know that I was afraid of writing a very long book for a long time because I felt like in this race to be successful, and I was looking looking ahead at like writing this you know this hugely long ambitious book and uh, and realizing that like even if it were successful, it wouldn't come out until God forbid my forties, and uh, it just felt like. Um, for a long time, I was just like afraid of that. And then finally I embraced it. Um, and, uh, when I moved to Florida, I, I became a teacher and, um, and really wanted to be good at that, really took that really seriously and, uh, and, and, and learned how to be a good teacher. And, and I would do my writing when I could, um, and, uh, and start plugging away at this novel, um, and allowing myself to go down the kind of strange rabbit holes, um, that the novel seemed to be inviting me down, even though I didn't know how they might relate to the to the to the, the to the um, to, to the plot. Okay, so a couple, um, couple, and uh, well, I want to stop you because you, you you became a teacher, yeah. and I think this is something that you know the writers uh, of ambition who are really serious about getting the work done always struggle with the time issue and wanting to make mm-hmm. sure that they can marshal their best energies uh, in the service of their creative work. And, you know, you take on a, a job as demanding as teaching, it definitely siphons away a lot of that energy. Um, but it sounds like you gained something from it. I'm curious to know what your work schedule looked like. If you say you only did the writing when you could, like you, you're working on a, a big novel um, with a lot going on mm-hmm. in it. it, it certainly is, uh, it's, a demanding, uh, it's a demanding piece of work. Uh, you know, a lot goes into creating something of that scale. Like, how did it, I mean, you had to have been working regularly. Did you have a set schedule or was it really as, as loose as you made it sound where you're just, you kind of working in pockets of time whenever they present themselves? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, when you're a brand new teacher, there's just a lot of legwork involved, um, getting lesson plans done, figuring out, uh, figuring out, you know, um, what the next unit is going to be like looking ahead in the semester, not to mention, you know, every time, you know, I, I would, I would be teaching four classes a semester of 25 students each comp classes. Ugh. And, uh, and, and so anytime you, you know, assign a five page essay, they all turn it in at the same time. And suddenly you have 500 pages of reading to get done. It's like every two weeks you have a really bad worn piece to get through over the weekend. Um, and so it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be, it can be tricky, um, but here's the thing. Okay, so early in my career, um, or in teaching career, before the writing of the Knicks like presented itself, like when, when it was still very, very difficult, and I didn't know what I was doing or, or where I was going, I would definitely blame teaching for my slow progress. Um, but late in my teaching career, so fast forward about seven, eight years, I had finally figured out what the Knicks was going to be about. And, and what I was doing with it. And I had a, had a basic structure and I was just flying. Um, and I was still a teacher and I still had 500 essays to grade over the weekend. Uh, and yet I was writing with much, much more pace, um, with much more energy. And so I realized it wasn't the teaching. It was me. That was, that was different. Um, I was enthusiastic, uh, versus kind of plotting my way through it, uh, earlier. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think, I think any job you do can can uh, can leave space for writing uh, or not, depending on kind of where you're at, where your head's at. Um, but you asked me about about my, my 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 specific process. I mean, what I would do is whenever I'd have two hours free in the morning, I would write, you know, and, uh, you know, first thing in the morning before I check email, you know, um, I would uh, I would do my writing. And, uh, and sometimes you don't have that time in the morning. Like sometimes you you procrastinated enough 
the day before that you have to get your lesson plans done for that class that day. And so, you know, you're spending your morning preparing for class or you're spending your morning, you know, finishing those last 20 essays, uh, grading those last 20 essays that you just didn't have the heart to finish at midnight the night before. Um, so, so yeah, like whenever I'd have those two hours in the morning, I would write and I would try my best to leave myself that space every day. But of course you can't do that. Yeah, and there's something to be said. I mean, like I, the the phrase that just occurred to me in my mind is caring too much, um, and I think sometimes. <laughs> but you know, like like you talk about your time in New York, and I, I can relate to this in my own uh, life and experience, where uh, you're so fixated on a certain outcome, and you have such a fixed view of what success is going to look like, and you're in such a hurry to get there, and yet you're so far from actualizing it that it creates this real internal tension. And that internal tension can stifle the creative process. Uh, and then you couple that with being, uh, as you said, like proximate to uh, other people who are maybe having more success in the same field. And you're proximate to the entire power structure of the business that you're trying to get into or the, I mean, maybe that's not the right phrase, but the art that you're trying to mm-hmm. uh, make and, uh, you know, that, that field that you're trying to have success in. Um, sometimes when we let go a little bit, you know, it creates that breathing room and, uh, it's a fickle process because, you know, you you talk about teaching and all of the demands that it places upon you and all the while you're working on the Knicks and you're struggling with it. And then finally, once the thing clicks into place, suddenly that, that side job or the, the day job is no longer, um, the obstacle that it once was. And like, and yet, mm-hmm. like, what was it that made the novel click into place other than just kind of chipping away at it, letting time do its thing, letting the thing marinate, letting your subconscious do its work? Like, I, it, it makes me think that you can't really force the issue. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you just have to let the thing incubate. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like there's something very Zen to be learned about. I learned from, from the whole process, like... You know, like uh, the, the the way to actually get what you want is to stop wanting it. You know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, like in some ways that that the, the, your very desire crushes the thing that you want. Um, and uh, I, I think that's I think that's true. Um, I know that that one of the reasons why it finally clicked for me um, uh, was uh, was uh, and I and I've said this in other interviews, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but it's uh, but it's the uh, it's the best way I've discovered to to describe it um, is to like uh, somewhere along the way I realized that there was no guarantee that the book would be published. You know, like my, my O for 38, um, uh, uh, spell on the other, on the other manuscripts made me realize that, that, uh, that there's no, you know, no guarantees in publishing. It's in some ways very, very fickle and, and definitely not predictable. Uh, and so I could spend 10 years writing this novel and still have nothing really to show for it. And if I, if I cared about that as much as I did when I was like 28, um, then that that would just be shattering. I wouldn't be able to do it. And and so in some ways, like um, one of the things preventing me from writing was the fear that the writing wouldn't be published. And then where would I be? You know. Um, and so there's this kind of almost subconscious slowing down. Of like you know, as long as you're still writing this novel, you're not yet a failure. <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. Um, and, uh, and and kind of letting that go and realizing that instead of painting all of my hopes on publishing this novel, that instead I should just, I better have fun while I'm doing it. Like it better, 
matter to me. Like the, those two hours that I get in the morning to do it better be worth it. It better be kind of an inspired two hours. It better make my life better. Uh, and so the way I started thinking about it is sort of the way a lot of people describe keeping a garden. You know, like you don't you don't keep a garden because you want to be famous and you don't think your garden is a failure if a lot of other people don't see your garden. It's just that you like to garden. And so those two hours every morning were like like, you know, like a garden. Like it was just like I really got to love doing it. And only then did uh, a lot of like the humor and and uh, uh, and uh, kind of absurdity and kind of enjoyment uh enter the book like if the book has any funny parts it's probably because i was trying to entertain myself along the way um and uh and and so that's that's when it really started clicking when i was doing the writing uh, when i when i stopped allowing the writing to define who i was as a person you know like i would get this published uh, or i wouldn't either way i'd kind of be the same guy um once i once I cleared that kind of mental hurdle, then weirdly the writing became much easier. Well, and I talked to Jonathan Saffron for in, in last week's episode um, about something that you just mentioned, which makes a lot of sense, but is, is seemingly uh, elusive uh, a lot of the time for people who are engaged in this kind of work. And it's this idea of, um, you know, in order for a work to be creatively vital, there has to be a sense of play involved in its creation. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can feel it when you're reading a book where the you can you can feel like the author had a good time um, and that there was a, <laughs> a, a real sense of creative play at work. You know, I don't know. Am I making sense there? Is that, it's, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, I know it was important for me. You know, I, I know that um, <laughs> once I... Uh, I, when I was when I was a younger writer, I, I sort of had two modes um, for my writing. I uh, one mode was a kind of comic absurdist mode, um, along the lines of say a Donald Barthelme or, or like an Edgar Carrot or someone like that, like uh, just kind of absurdist stories that were really popular in readings at bars. You know what I mean? Um, like those things that you know you, you read it in seven minutes and everybody gets a good laugh. Um, and, uh, and then I had this other mode that I kind of thought in my head as like real literature that were like really heavy, um, uh, kind of domestic dramas about people unhappy with their lives. Uh, and, uh, and those are the things I submitted to like literary journals cause that was, that was the important stuff. And, and in, in some ways, like the Knicks represented the first time when I combined those impulses, like finally I was able to take kind of important <laughs> important things, you know, important like relationships and unhappiness, politics, you know, uh, uh, but, but write it in such a way that's not so incredibly like sanctimonious or a way that's not so incredibly heavy handed instead have fun with it and, and, uh, and, and see the ridiculousness in it, um, in, 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 in some way. And, and, and so like, thank God, like I, <laughs> I remember when I, when I finally started creating this material, um, my wife, who who was reading all of it um, as I was writing it, uh, was that uh, was just like asking me like, where is this stuff coming from? It was just it was it was brand new for me. Well, and I want to talk to you about something you just mentioned, and that is politics and fiction. And I know that mm -hmm. there there were real world events, um, you know, like the events of 2004, the reelection of George W. Bush. Uh, which had an impact on you, uh, both in your life and then also in your work. And, uh, you know, we could we could sit here and um, talk about all the, the various things that have happened uh, in this country and elsewhere that might have factored into 
the Knicks and into your uh, personal politics. But what I want to talk about is the difficulties inherent in writing fiction that incorporates politics because, you know, a lot of times when it's done, I find that uh, it lends itself to soapboxing. It creates situations where you can sort of see the puppet strings, you know, on characters and you can feel like, you know, you're the author's is... You know, he's like the visible puppeteer. You can, you can. He's basically just using mm-hmm. these characters as a way of voicing his or her own opinions. And, um, you know, right. did you have difficulty like executing that? Did you, uh, you know, it sounds like you reached some sort of insight where you were able to kind of get past that and focus instead uh, on characters and let the politics be an outgrowth of them as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I did. I, I think the first impulse, or one of the first impulses for the Knicks, was was anger at their re-election of George Bush. Uh, I, I just, I never thought that would happen, and then it did. And uh, and I wanted to express my anger about it. Uh, and and in some ways, like thank goodness, writing this book took so long because it was maybe halfway through the Obama administration when I realized, wow, all that material is really dated and stupid now. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and got rid of it, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, it's exactly why I'm really hesitant, even though I'm kind of in, you know, thinking about it all the time, I'm really hesitant to write about writing about the quote unquote age of Trump, because I feel like I need distance from it. I feel like I, I'm not going to be able to write about what we're going through right now until he's not president anymore until long after he's not president. Anymore. Well, but, I, um, I've been talking, I've other, been... other writers might do a better job of it. Well, I've been talking about him too much probably on this show. And I did an entire episode right after the election where I just like got on the microphone, like traumatized mm-hmm. and, and I'm terrified to re-listen to any of it for precisely that reason. You know, it's very hard to have perspective mm. and it's very hard to see things clearly when they're moving as quickly as they are, uh, especially now. It feels like such a fluid environment. Yeah. I know. And, and, and this is why, like, I am on Twitter, but I don't share any, really any political opinions on on Twitter. I'm really just there to, like, keep people up uh, up to, to date on, on where I'm going and, and also to say thank you to people who say nice things about the book. Um, but, but, uh, but I feel like Twitter really encourages this sort of like opinion vending machine phenomenon where it's like something happens and now I have to be outraged about it. And, uh, and I, I feel like I want to reserve the right to like take in a lot of information and sit with it in a quiet room for many years digesting. Um, and, 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 and sharing kind of outrage too much creates a kind of, I think, a kind of like anchoring effect that keeps you there. Uh, and so, I don't know, like, it's probably good for for advocacy, and uh, uh, but it's, I don't know if it's good for novel writing, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to just kind of take it all in right now. Um, but but to your question about writing about politics, yeah, it's re- I think it's really dangerous. So, you know, like I think the best subjects in fiction are ones that we don't have our minds made up about. You know, I, I feel like when we do, when we know exactly how we feel about something and we write about it, it's like, uh, what's that? Is that a Faulkner quote? It's, uh, it's writing, it's not writing from the heart, but writing from the glands. You know, like it's, yeah, I, I feel like, as soon as as soon as like I, I know exactly how I feel about a subject, uh, uh, there 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 happens a kind of closure on that subject that that precludes exactly the kind of playfulness that we were talking about earlier. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that um, I loved reading about uh, as I was preparing to talk with you is what a messy process uh, the writing of this book was. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think the temptation for people who are watching 
what happened in the aftermath of publication. You know, I guess like leading up to and then in the aftermath of publication, the temptation is always to think of it as a cleaner a cleaner thing than it actually was in practice. But this was a decade. This was tons of rejection. This is a 600-page novel that at one point was a, like, what, 1,000-page manuscript? That's right, yeah. So, I mean, this this was a, a really extended process that involved a lot of failure uh, and a lot of false starts and, you know, do-overs and cutting and uncertainty, you know, like all the things that we sort of want to avoid as people and as artists. What was it that made you keep going? <laughs> oh, um, well, part of it was, was what I was talking about uh, earlier with the, the gardening metaphor was eventually it was just, um, it was fun. It was fun for me. You know, I, I liked being with these characters and, and also in, in a really important way. And I hope this doesn't sound too self-helpy, but like, I felt like I learned a lot about myself. Uh, and I learned about a lot about my own relationships, uh, writing through writing the book like it was a it was a a place for me to test out things that i was confused about and uh, and that was really helpful uh and 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 so i found just the writing of it um i found that it was it was it was it was just something i I looked forward to um and i was i was always happy when i had those couple hours free in the morning to be able to do it um beyond that i don't know like i i felt like uh, I felt like I had a, I had so much material that eventually it's just like it reaches a critical mass. Like I, you know, like I know that it's going to take another two years to finish this book, but I've already spent eight. So what the hell, you know, why not keep going? Um, you just kind of reach a moment where you're like, you just accept it and, uh, uh, and, and just decide, well, this is, this is the book that I'm writing and it's going to take as long as it's going to take and just accept it and, 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 and move on. So let's talk about when you finish, the manuscript you you find an agent first of all yes yes um uh i found uh found an agent uh emily forland uh and uh and she uh, um she actually signed me up years before i finished the novel um uh i uh, i sent uh I, I read a book uh by one of her her clients a book called stiltsville by Susanna daniel uh and really liked it a lot and i thought um one of the things that that Stiltsville was doing with its characters was one of the things I was sort of interested in at the time. And, and so I sent, I sent, I, I looked in the acknowledgements page to find out who the agent was and discovered it was Emily. And so I sent her a short story and, and said, um, Hey, uh, uh, I read Stiltsville, loved it. And here's a story. I hope you like it. And she wrote back, said she liked the story and asked for me for a couple more stories. And so I sent her a couple more stories and unbelievably she said, okay, um, I'll represent you. And only then did she ask me if I was working on a novel. And I said, yes, in fact, I am. Uh, I'll have it to you really soon. And then five years later, <laughs> uh, I finally got it to her. I, uh, I, I, I sent her an email annually uh, where I was like, hey, don't forget about me. I'm still working on this book. And she'd write back very pleasantly, you know, don't worry about it. Like, send me, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm, I'll be waiting just when it's finished. And so, uh, and then, and then one day, five years later, I dumped this like 800 page manuscript uh, on her and, oh. uh, and she was not expecting it at all. Okay. So I was going to say, so when you finally decided it was ready for your agent to look at, at that point, the manuscript was 800 pages. So you'd pared it down a little bit. I pared it down. Yeah. So my first draft was a thousand pages. 
<clears throat> a thousand pages long and uh and and then there was an obvious like rewrite to do uh that uh, where I trimmed it to about I think about 800 maybe 8, 850 something like that and then it got down to another 200 pages once you like after after you had sold the book or yeah, so Emily helped me. Uh, we, I went through two drafts with with Emily, with my agent, uh, and she helped me cut it back uh, a little bit more. And then, um, and then with my with my editor at Knopf, Tim O'Connell, um, he and I went through four full drafts together and uh, and cut it down to the the current size. So let's talk about the sales process because this has to be. I mean, at the end of a decade of work, your agent has the manuscript. You've edited it with her. You've got it ready for submission. You go out to publishers, and then what? Well, I should say beforehand that my expectations were quite low. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been around enough writers. I have enough enough friends who are writers who have written brilliant books um, to know that not every book finds its audience, and and uh, and the market for new writers is pretty um, pretty bad. Uh, and here I I, I wrote um, a six hundred page novel. Uh, nobody had ever heard of me, and the novel was not easily elevator pitchable. So I, my, my my expectations were very low. I remember my wife being very excited, and and me uh, me me tamping down her excitement, like not to expect too much. You know, like uh, it, it could very easily not sell, um, or if it did sell, um, sell in a very small way. So, yeah. So, um, let's see. My my agent uh, sent it out to uh, to some publishers. Um, some scouts got a hold of it. Uh, somehow, I still don't quite know how that happens, um, but some scouts got a hold of it, sent it to more publishers. It got on the grapevine, and all of a sudden, I was looking at the statistics on my on my personal webpage. They, they just kind of blew up one day, um, and uh, I had an interest from all over the world very, very quickly. Um, and uh, and Tim Knopf uh, called me. Um, he had gotten the uh, the manuscript and read it in a day and a half, and then called me to just chat for a while. I think we talked for like an hour, not even about the book at first, just, just, just to talk. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then Knopf offered the very next day. And that was just like a week after Emily had sent it out. So, you know, after 10 years of writing, it sold in a week. It did not take long. Wow. And so what, when, like, I want to go backwards, this scouts thing. What, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know about this either. Um, there are all sorts of folks um, in uh, in New York who are scouting material for their respective clients. So um, scouts who are there uh, looking for material for publishers in Europe, scouts who are there who are looking for material for Hollywood. Like I know like the scout for like, I don't know, TNT scripted television, I think was, was really interested in the book or something like that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, Tim got a hold of it through a, a scout who had who had found it uh, working for another client, and but just knew that he thought Tim would like it. So uh, it was, yeah, it was. It's very strange, and I still don't entirely understand um, understand the process. But uh, but but it's it's one of the kind of shadowy parts of publishing that I still don't fully understand. So your agent calls you and says Knopf has made an offer. Where are, where are you when that happens? Mm-hmm. Where are you when that happens, and how do you respond? So this is unnecessarily complicated, but uh, uh, um, uh, by that time I had taken a job. So I was, I was a untenured instructor at Florida Gulf Coast University. And in 2012, um, the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota uh, offered me a tenure track job teaching uh, comp and creative writing. Uh, And so I went to Minnesota for, 
for a few years. Um, and, uh, and so I was, I was living in St. Paul, uh, when that phone call came. And where, like, and so what happens? You're at home, the phone rings and your agent, <laughs> your agent says, yeah, I'm at home. My agent says, so we have an offer for, from Knopf. Uh, and, uh, and I, I kind of do a little like gleeful jump. I'm completely alone. Um, my wife has, <laughs> my, my wife, um, had not joined me that year. Like, like, she was she was keeping her job in Florida in case the in case the Minnesota thing didn't work out and then we we're going to make a decision after the tenure thing happened it was like I said all unnecessarily complicated but um, so I was alone in the house and uh, and she says that uh, that Knopf has made an offer um, and I was really really excited about that because my first conversation with Tim um, I was just amazed at how well he understood the book like there there are characters in the book that I think if you're not paying attention closely, you could, you could wonder why they exist. Like, why do they need to be there? Um, why do those characters need to be there? And, and Tim understood exactly why those characters needed to be there. He was explaining it to me. Like he understood the book down to its bones. So I really wanted to work with him. And so the fact that, that, that the offer had come and that it had come from him was, I was just, I was overjoyed. And then, you know, what happened? <laughs> I was, I, uh, I, I accepted the offer, uh, and then, uh, promptly went to, um, I was I was playing a, a, a like a three times a week basketball league for like faculty and grad students down at the university gym. So I went and played basketball and I got this vicious elbow right to the cheek <laughs> that day. It was the first time I'd ever been injured at that game. But I suddenly had a black eye and this big welt on my face. I, it was almost like the universe was telling me, like, we can take this all away at any moment. <laughs> you know, I thought I thought I, I thought you, I thought you were going to say I thought you were going to say that, like, for the first time in your life, you dunked or something like it was I was where I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh no quite the quite the quite the opposite i was laid out on the floor wow and so and then the book sold internationally like what 16 different territories or whatever 16 different countries it it's it's crazy it's gotten up to we've sold now 30 translations wow that's like the dream you know for a de- yeah. for a debut novel like you can't ask for much more than that it was reviewed very well upon publication uh did the movie rights sell uh, yes, uh, we're we're working on uh, working on the on the. It's going to be a, a television miniseries, a limited series, um, and uh, the people we have on board, like the sheer star power wattage, is unbelievable. Uh, we have uh, uh, Meryl Streep on board. We have J.J. Abrams on board. We have John Logan on board. It's it's kind of unbelievable. Wait, Meryl Streep is going to play uh, the lead role in your? In, oh my god, that's yeah. about, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I'm aware. Yeah, so who is it? Who's uh, who's it for? Like, what what network? We are we are we are right now still casting about for that. Oh, okay. Uh, we okay. Uh, we have some some networks who are who are looking at some scripts and and hopefully uh, somebody will will greenlight it soon. Okay. And do you have uh, any interest? Are you participating in the scripting? A little bit. Um, I. I uh, uh, John Logan, the the very experienced Hollywood screenwriter and showrunner, um, uh, wanted to come aboard uh, to be the showrunner and adapter, and I was super enthusiastic about that because I, gosh, I haven't written a screenplay since like grad school. Um, so the fact that this pro wanted to do it, I was I was really happy about it. But but uh, but we are kind of going back and forth on the scripts, and I'm sending notes, and I think I'm probably going to write one episode. Um, because I want to, it just seems like a really cool new challenge. Sure. Um, but, but John is going to be doing 
the lion's share, like almost all of the heavy lifting on this. And then have you met with Meryl Streep? Am I allowed to ask that? Did you get to meet her? <laughs> no, no, not yet. I think uh, I was... I was in LA for the for the book festival, um, the LA Times Book Fest. Uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago, two months ago, um, and I stopped by Bad Robot and met with JJ Abrams and, and the folks there. Um, but I, she was she was out of town, so I was, we have not yet met. Wow, well that's exciting. Congratulations on that. And then, thank you. Uh, I also want to ask you briefly, um, you know, about this uh, this trip to Norway that you made for your what your Norwegian publisher and your fateful meeting with John Irving. Yes, yeah, um, uh, one one of the happiest accidents of uh, of my career. Um, yeah, it was. When, when was that? January of 2016. Uh, my my wife had a, a week off from uh, from the orchestra. There's no concerts that week, and and uh, this happened to coincide with this this crazy deal that Norwegian Air was having. Uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale to Oslo for like a hundred and fifty dollars. Um, uh, a direct flight. It was crazy. So we had never really thought about visiting Oslo in January, but we're like, why not? $150. Let's go, let's go to Scandinavia for a week. And, uh, and by that time I had sold a Norwegian translation. So I emailed my, my publisher there, um, saying like, you know, let's get some coffee or something. And she said, uh, actually that, uh, John Irving was going to be in town because they publish him in, in, in Norwegian too. And, uh, and and he was doing an event with them, so she got us tickets to the event, and then we all went out to dinner uh, afterwards, and uh, that's how I met John Irving. Um, and mostly we talked about Iowa City for like 45 minutes because you know we both lived there for a long time. Um, but uh, <laughs> I've been I've been a fan of his for so long that like I didn't even want to tell him I was a writer. I didn't want to come off as like a fanboy or <laughs> like come off like I was asking him for something. So mostly we just. We just shot the shit for a while, uh, and then at the end of the dinner, he discovered that I had this book coming out, and um, my editor um, later asked him to read it, and he gave us our first blurb, like the very first one uh, came from him, which was amazing. That's a pretty good first blurb. It was, yeah. It was <laughs> it was, it was, was really great, especially given that, like, um, I don't know, like the whole blurbing process is really difficult because your publisher asks you, like, what writers do you know, and... Uh, and I started listing off writers and like most of them are poets, <laughs> you know, you could just see their, their faces fall. They're like, that's not gonna, that's not a selling blurb, you know, like, uh, uh, do you know? And I was like, well, I don't know. I drove Anthony door to the, to the airport once, you know? <laughs> you know, like, but I, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable asking him to like read this like 600 page book. So yeah, like getting blurbs, like I felt like anybody who blurbed my book, like was, should be qualified for sainthood because like they didn't know me and they didn't have to read 600 pages, but they did. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's great. And so what, what are you working on now? In addition to, uh, the, the adaptation of the Knicks, like, are you, uh, into another novel? Sort of. I, I have my um, I have my adventures and my setting. I'm not sure what the plot's going to be, but I have some basic themes that I'm working with. Um, but uh, but I'm I'm. It's mostly just like in my head and not happening on the page yet because the uh, the touring for the Knicks is ongoing. So um, on Monday I, I leave for the last leg of the paperback tour, uh, and that's going to take me to the end of the month, at the end of June, and then I'll have I have the summer. Um, before going uh, to Europe for I think two months of uh, of of, uh, of promotion in the fall, and I think everything calms down, and I think my my duties are done by November. So probably by November, I'm going to start really working every day on the next novel, and kind of until then, it's very piecemeal. 
Wow. And so when you say you have your adventures, like, are you outlining, like, or do you just have like a list of things that you think like loosely what you want to incorporate or is it more detailed than that? It's, it's, um, uh, it's definitely not stuff that I want to have happen. It's much more like stuff that, uh, is, uh, is qualities of these characters, you know, just things that they would think things that they would believe. Um, and that usually leads to plot, but I don't, I definitely don't have any kind of, any kind of plot or outline. And did you have an outline with the Knicks, like just as your working process? Like, do you get to a point where you actually do sit down and like map it out? I did, but that wasn't until like seven years into the process. Okay. Um, uh, for a long time, um, for a long time, I, I, I was I, I I was writing these sections um, in different uh, different periods in time, not knowing quite how they connected to each other or how I was going to structure them or uh, or lead the reader through them, but just knowing that they needed to be there and, and hoping that I would figure it out later. Well, I will have to get back in touch with you in like 2024 to hear about what's going to happen in your next book. I can't wait. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Like it's it's after November, I'm off the hook for anything. So there's like no no deadlines uh, for the next book, and it's just I can start kind of leisurely working. And I'm 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 really looking forward to it. Are you under contract for a next book, or is this? Gonna... No, I'm not. Okay, so you're just going to get you're free as a bird. That's right. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm I kind of love it. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and I, I appreciate the time uh, as you go about this paperback tour. I congratulate you on all the success that you had with the Knicks uh, and continue to have and, and wish you the very best on the next book. Thank you, Brad. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is Nathan Hill, his debut novel, The Knicks, now available in trade paperback. From Vintage. You can find him online at NathanHill.net. He's also on Twitter. His handle there is at NathanReads. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. This podcast has its own official app. Don't forget about that. The app is free. All episodes of this program are free. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a listener-supported endeavor. If you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat at Patreon.com slash OtherPPLPod. So good time talking with Nathan. Great story. It's awesome to hear stories about authors who follow a long road, see it all the way through, and then have uh, major success. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you would like to share, thoughts on the program, a story you would like to tell, you can do that by sending me email at letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. For news and updates, you can uh, follow the program on Facebook. It's also uh, represented on Twitter at otherppl. I frequently uh, tweet at otherppl. I frequently retweet political stuff. What do you guys think about my, uh, like, masseuse novel? Is that a winning idea? Did I just stumble into literary gold? Deep Tissue by Brad Lesty. Hot stones. <laughs> I can keep going with this. I can just I can just roll. 
Happy Father's Day, belated. By the time uh, you guys listen to this, it'll be after the fact, but I hope all the fathers out there had good Father's Days. It's good to be a dad. It's good to be a good dad. Try to be a good dad. Do your best. Don't be creepy. (laughs) 